So this morning, we are beginning a 10-sermon series that will run through Easter uh, on the life and work of Jesus Christ. Why this series? Well, for one thing, if we're going to call ourselves Christians, and if we're going to live in Christ as the gospel invites us to do, then we need to be very clear about who Christ is. I think this is especially important for us during times of transition such as the one that we are in uh, this year as a church. Because in times of transition, it is so easy to become focused on issues, challenges, changes, and to lose our focus on Jesus along the way. And we don't want to do that. When we focus on who Jesus is, what he's done for us, what he's doing right now in these days, then we begin to till the soil of our hearts, our spiritual lives, so that these beautiful flowers of faith and hope and love can grow in this rich soil of the good news about Jesus. And that's what we want in this series. We want to focus on Jesus as we move together into the future. Uh, And then plus for another thing, I really... I really wanted to end my time as your senior pastor with us just preaching our hearts out about Jesus this winter and spring. Amen? Amen. So let's go. Today we begin by looking at his name. And the title of the message is simply, What's in a Name? What's in a Name? Let's read our text for today. It's Philippians 2, uh, verses 5 through 11. This is the word of God. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Those verses are among the most powerful words in the entire Bible. Many Bible scholars believe that these verses were used as an early church hymn that was sung over and over and over because they contain the essence of our Christology, our doctrine about Jesus Christ. And so this hymn begins with telling us that Christ Jesus has the very nature of God. That's who he is. As the gospel writer John puts it, he was with God and was God from the very beginning of all things. But from that place of deity, he chose to humble himself and take on human nature, specifically the nature of a servant among his fellow men. Think about this. Almighty God, our creator, was revealed as a servant among us. It's amazing. And that servant, was given the name Jesus. What's in a name? 
What's in a name, Shakespeare asks. That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. In other words, here we have from as early as the 17th century an illustration of our current tendency to think of names as mere labels, that it doesn't really matter all that much what you call something. The person is the same just as a rose is the same and smells just as sweet, no matter what name we choose to use as a label for it. So when parents name their children today, they may pick a family name. But usually they, cha- they, they choose a name simply because they like it or they think it's cute in some way. By contrast, for the ancients, a name was filled with meaning. It was supposed to reveal the character of the man or the woman the parents hoped their child would grow up to be. In the course of their lives, some people even had an adjective attached to their name that described their life's work. For example, Alexander the Great, William the Conqueror, Simon the Zealot, John the Baptist, in my case, Pastor John. In the Bible, when people experienced the grace of God, it changed everything for them. And sometimes to illustrate that, they were given a new name. We saw this in our Jacob sermon series this past fall, right? As Jacob, the heel-grabbing deceiver, became Israel, the limping God-wrestler. And there are many more examples of this in Scripture. Abram and Sarai became Abraham and Sarah. Simon became Peter. Joseph became Barnabas. And Saul, Saul the persecutor, became Paul the apostle of Jesus Christ. It's amazing transformation. Change of name. It has meaning. So, when an angel appeared in a dream to a carpenter named Joseph to tell him, that the child his fiancée Mary was carrying had been conceived by the Holy Spirit. And when the angel said that the baby was to be named Jesus, it wasn't because God happened to like the name or thought it was cute in some way. No, it meant something. Something that would change the world. The name Jesus, or Yeshua, is an Aramaic form of the Hebrew word, name, of Joshua. And what it means is, the Lord saves. The Lord saves. Yahshua, the Lord saves. The reason that the name Jesus was given in Aramaic is because that's what ordinary Jewish people had been speaking since the days of Israel's exile. And even though they had returned to the promised land, For centuries, it still felt like they were a long way from the right place in life. And that was because one foreign power after another had occupied the land. Currently, in the first century, it was the Romans, which meant that the Jewish people knew very little about freedom, either politically or economically or even personally. They were longing for God to send another Savior, Yahshua. They were longing for God to send another Savior to lead them finally to the right place in their lives. With those expectations, a lot of parents hoped their child would be the new Yeshua. 
I've had the privilege over 35 years of pastoral ministry to see how parents look at their newborn children. And I can tell you, no parent hopes that his or her child will grow up to be a dismal failure in life. No, all parents know, you just know that this one, your child, is destined for greatness. (laughs) Am I right, parents? You just know it. This will be the one. So, it's not surprising that when Jesus was born, there were a lot of other kids who were also named Jesus. For example, the ancient Jewish historian Josephus knew 20 different people named Jesus. There were at least five high priests with that name. And in the genealogy of Jesus, in the Gospels, we're told that he already had an ancestor in the family tree named Jesus. The Apostle Paul mentions in his letter to the Colossians that he also had a friend named Jesus, another one. Even the criminal Barabbas had the first name of Jesus. So when Pilate stood in front of the crowd, he asked them, whom do you want me to release for you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Savior? It was as if to say, here are two different men with the same name who have two very different ideas about salvation. Which one do you want? One, we are told, was notorious. Jesus Barabbas. He was a revolutionary trying to overthrow the Roman government. The other Jesus was just Jesus, a carpenter an ordinary Aramaic-speaking country rabbi from Galilee. Well, as always, the crowd chose the one who was notorious. One of the great debates of Jesus' day was over how Yeshua would appear and how his salvation would be manifested. Over the next couple of months in this sermon series, we're going to look at how the salvation of Jesus is manifested. For today, it is enough for us to look at his name. My main point for today, main point for today is to stay with the spiritual significance of Jesus' name being ordinary, being common. And the point of stressing this is to say that Jesus knows what it means to be you. Jesus knows what it means to be you. You see, this means that the Son of God who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, the very incarnation of God, who was made flesh and dwelt among us, the Savior who could save people from their sins, as the angel promised Joseph, and could bring us home to the right place with God, this Yeshua, this Jesus, was as ordinary a human being as you and I. He knew what it meant to be hungry, Thirsty, lonely, tired, frustrated, sad. If he caught a virus, he got sick. When his friend died, he cried. But he was also filled with passions and delights. He loved dinner parties and lively conversations. He liked good wine at wedding receptions, and he was even willing to bring it. Like all adult children, he had some trouble at times with his family that just did not understand him. He even had to struggle with temptation. 
Jesus knows what it means to be you. Jesus knows what it means to be you. That's my main point. He really, really knows what it means to be you. Not just the person next to you. He knows what it means to be you. He has walked where you walk. There is nowhere you can go and nothing you can go through that he has not already gone before you. Down through the centuries, the church has rightly stressed the divinity of Jesus. Yes, that he is the eternal word made flesh, that he is fully God, that he is in very nature God, that Jesus is the name above all names, and that one day, what a day that will be, one day at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of all and Lord alone. Amen? Yes. Yes. The church has rightly stressed the deity of Jesus Christ. He is God. But we have not always stressed with equal vigor and clarity that as the incarnation of God, Jesus was also fully human. And this has left many of us with assumptions that make us think about Jesus kind of the way we think about Superman, who only looks human but isn't and cannot be hurt. That is not how God's salvation and hope for our lives is manifested in Jesus Christ. Yeshua, even the common Aramaic name spoken in the common language of that day, Yeshua, Jesus, means that God knows what it's like to walk where you walk. He knows what it's like to be in exile and not to have your life in the right place. That's because in Jesus Christ, God left the right place to come and find us where we were, in all the wrong places. Here it's important that we remind ourselves that when we use the name Jesus Christ, we're not saying that Jesus is his first name and Christ is his last name. What we are saying, it's that, it's that label, that title, that adjective. We're saying that the Christ the promised, anointed Messiah who saves, that Christ is this Jesus. The one who took on flesh, knows our lives inside and out. He knows what it's like to be us. And if we don't believe that, this is so important, if we do not believe that, then what does the righteousness of Jesus Christ become? It becomes just an otherworldly critique and judgment against us, against our unrighteousness. It stands against us if Jesus does not stand with us. Do you see? Jesus came to stand with us. I find that when it comes to salvation, uh, most of us believe that God is somehow at work in the world. Many people believe that Jesus is the Savior who somehow forgives the sins of the world. But all of this theological truth is occurring kind of over our heads. You know, it's abstract and general and vague. But as the name Yeshua proclaims, God is not at work in general ways, but in very particular ones. It is not abstract. 
but personal. It's not vague, very concrete. It's a man with a real name, a common name, Yeshua. And so Jesus is not just, you know, their Savior out there somewhere, somehow, but he is your Savior right here, right now as well. He's not just, you know, concerned about your life. He is deeply involved and deeply committed to you in your life. So God knows. God knows. No one else can fully know you. Not completely. It doesn't matter how much they love you or how well acquainted with you they are. No one else can fully know you your hurts, your confusions, your disappointments, your dreams, your longings. The only person who could do that would have to be both fully God and fully human in order to completely get you. God knows. He has been there for all of it. He always will be. And if you believe that, then your life is already at least moving toward the right place. God is not an idea. He's not a concept. He's a real person who knows your ordinary life and who still adores you. That's right. That's what I said. He knows everything about you, the good, the bad, the ugly, and he still adores you. Doesn't it say that God so loved the world that he sent Jesus? He still adores you. That's why he came for you. And so now the question is, have you taken the time to know and adore him, to know God well enough to fall in love with him? Here's what happens when you do. And and this is so important for us as a church family in this year of transition. And this is my main application for today. Here it is. It is your privilege to follow Jesus in stooping to love others in humble service. That is your privilege. You have a holy privilege to walk where Jesus walked. It's your privilege to follow Jesus in stooping to love others in humble service. And if that scares you in any way, I just want to say you can never outstoop Jesus. You can never outstoop Jesus. Here's what I mean. You start to realize that you have come to know the God who stooped lower than you can ever go in order to love you and serve you with his salvation. Jesus came and took on the very worst things that can happen to a human being. Jesus came and he took on the very worst things that can ever happen to a human being. This is the Jesus that Philippians 2 introduces to us. He stoops to become a man. Then he stoops to become a servant among men. Then he stoops to become a crucified one among the lowest of the low. He finally stoops to die the worst kind of agonizing, humiliating death possible. This is the God and the man you meet in Jesus Christ the humblest servant of all. You cannot outstoop Jesus. And because of his love and his salvation, you're set free 
you're set free yourself to stoop low in order to walk with others and to love them and to serve them in the same way that God did for you in Jesus Christ. This is the dynamic of Philippians 2, our text today. This is the heart and the hands and the feet of this gospel good news we believe. Stoop to love. Stoop to serve others as Jesus has stooped to love and serve you. Jesus always has a surplus of love that stoops and serves. So don't worry. You, you can't outstoop him. You can't outstoop his supply. He has plenty of that to give to you during this time of transition in our church family. We're going to be called upon to serve one another in love. We're going to be called upon each one of us to say, not my way. Lord, what is your way as we move forward? To serve one another in love. And I believe there's no stopping us if we will walk together in humble love and service in the name of Jesus. Amen? This is the true basis of our humility. Humility has nothing to do with thinking that you're not good enough, so you might as well serve other people. Or it's not about what you have done or left undone. It has everything to do with the discovery that a Savior has found you. This Savior has come and found you lost in a broken world of sin and fear and uncertainty. And the Spirit of God has adopted you into the Son of God's beloved relationship with his Father. You were once outside. You were once outside. But the triune God, Father, Son, Spirit, has brought you home. He has forgiven you. He has given you a place at the table in his circle of love. And if you pay attention to this extraordinary grace freely given, you can only be grateful and humbled and say, here I am, Lord. I know how we think, and I know how hard this notion of grace is to truly grasp. You're all working so hard. And you want to get an A on this exam called life. But the truth is, it's all just pass-fail. That drives you crazy, doesn't it? Be honest. But adopted children are not supposed to struggle for an A in being loved. That's not how it works. They just receive love by grace. And after that, they can begin to take on the characteristics of their family identity. This is the dynamic of the gospel. We don't make changes in life in order to receive grace. We make changes in life only because the grace has been so freely given to us. And then we're really set free to take the risk of making the changes that God wants to make in our lives. And the greatest change of all, of course, is that we begin to look, not perfectly, but here and there, flashes. We begin to look like our Savior and our older brother and our joint heir who is named Jesus Christ. So having received the esteem of the Father's love by grace, you can now identify with Jesus' ministry of humbling yourself to serve one another. 
But I do want to say this. Don't dare to rush into this thing called humility until and unless you have first received that gracious love from God. Because humility can so easily become a law for you. Humility, true humility, can only flow out of forgiveness and love and grace, or it will crush you. It will become a heavy burden for you. I've got to humble myself here. It will make you critical of others you are trying to serve. I want you to know, I so want you to know, that you are cherished in Christ. So cherished that God left heaven to find you and bring you home to the right place. This is at the core of truth in this universe in which we live. I find that for most of us, you know, we don't have a hard time believing the awful things about ourselves. Most of us are pretty clear about that already, and so are the people around us. The more frightening truth that we don't really know what to do with is that we are cherished, that God actually cherishes us. Because that will change us. The ancient monastics had a prayer they often used, and it went like this. Lord, show me the truth about myself, no matter how beautiful it is. Okay, when was the last time you prayed that? (laughs) I know, it makes some of you cringe a bit, doesn't it? We just don't know how to pray like that. We don't know how to make that part of our prayer life. It kind of rubs us the wrong way. But I would maintain that until you come to see your beauty in Christ, your redeemed beauty in Christ, you'll never be able to serve in Christ. You'll just be destined to undertake nervous actions and reactions in the fear that that the world is going to take away whatever beauty there is about your life if you don't protect yourself and watch your back and look out for number one. And there's nothing of humility or service in that. Jesus was so free to be the humblest servant of all because he knew who he was. He knew the beauty the Father had built into his life. Let me give you an example from the world of literature. In Ovid's famous poem about Narcissus, we're introduced to a young man who is so beautiful that all of the nymphs love him. But early in the poem, Narcissus, he's completely incapable of loving anyone. And when he sees his own reflection in a pool of water, he falls in love for the first time. The important thing to remember is that he didn't know it was his own image that he was seeing in the water. So he kept reaching into the pool for that beautiful person he was seeing, only to lose that new image when he disturbed the water. When Narcissus stands up, we know that part of the story, but do we know the rest of the story? When Narcissus stands up and realizes that the person he sees and loves in the water is himself, do you know what he says? He says, what I long for, I have. What I long for, I have. And now he faces a great choice having discovered the beauty of his life, freely given to him by grace, 
He can now return to the world free to love and give himself away to others. But sadly, he does not choose that. Instead, he chooses to return to the pool and lie down next to the water, and he becomes so consumed by his own beautiful image that he withers away and eventually descends into the underworld. Why do I tell you that story? Because we need to know the difference between narcissism and humility. And the difference between narcissism and humility is simply this. What do you do when you discover this beautiful truth that what you long for, you already have in Jesus Christ? What you long for, you already have in Jesus Christ. And nobody can take that from you. And nobody can add to that. You're free. So what are you going to do? What choice will you make? Are you going to turn toward the world as one who is now free to love as Jesus loves you? Or are you going to turn back, obsessing with your own image and how people see you and what people think, and you're afraid of losing something you have, something you love? And you can never serve with that mindset, never. In Jesus Christ, you are given a new image of yourself. Look at him, and you will see what the Holy Spirit has created in you. Reach for him, and you will find God's beautiful new creation in your life. But you cannot stop there. Jesus won't let you. The reason he became like you was so that you could become like him, humble, giving yourself away to those who are dying for the Father's love, dying for the Father's grace, dying for the Father's forgiveness. Because now you have nothing to lose. You have nothing to lose, and you have nothing to prove. You're free. Now, as the beautiful, beloved creation of God in Jesus Christ, you can give to others a life that is actually worth giving away. In this year of transition, will you be a narcissist or will you be a servant? It gets very personal. There's really no middle ground. We're going to go to one end of that spectrum or the other. Will you be a narcissist or will you be a servant? In other words, will you love your way and insist on your way and serve your own agenda because you're afraid of what might happen if you don't? Or will you love God's ways and serve his purposes because you're free? You're free in Jesus Christ. Will you humble yourself to serve what God wants to do for the future of this beautiful church family? What your brothers and sisters need from you going forward? Do you see in Christ you are loved? In Christ, you are forgiven. In Christ, you are free. In Christ, you have been given the capacity to love both the world around you and the church that you're part of, even when it makes you nervous. And it will. It'll always make you nervous to serve someone else. Always. But in Christ, just remember, you have been given a perfect love that casts out fear and sets you free to serve as he has served you. So Jesus, that's the name. Jesus is the name of your down-to-earth Savior who came to walk where you walk so that you would be able to walk where he walked as the humblest servant of all. 
And when you can see Jesus, when you really look at Jesus and you focus on him, when you can see Jesus, you can actually see yourself, his life in you, his life in you. And and that is what your future looks like, and it starts now. Amen? Amen. We come to the Lord's table uh, on this first Sunday of the month, and I'd like to have us listen to just a few verses from